Well, that is the good news today, and I'm glad you're here to celebrate it. To me, Easter is just perhaps the most special of all holidays, and one of the things that I find interesting about Easter is um, it's celebrated pretty much by everyone, whether you're a religious person, which I would not consider myself, or a spiritual person, or I have friends who are agnostic who still celebrate Easter. And I think the reason why is that Easter somehow kind of equates with life, and life is precious to all of us. We all love life. And for all of you who are parents, you remember that, that moment when you had your first baby, and there was that moment in the delivery room, um, ladies, where the nurse or the doctor placed the baby on your stomach, and, and you looked at that child or dad's nurse or doctor handed your baby to you, and you looked into her eyes or his eyes for the first time. I just don't think they're atheists at that moment. I think there's something about that moment that you just look at the miracle of life and you realize the preciousness of it. To have a child and realize that child has a life ahead of him or a life ahead of her. And, and now I'm at the stage where all my sons have grown. You saw my oldest there on stage just a moment ago. He's 31. My youngest is a sophomore at Wichita State. And I'm past that stage. It's been a long time, but now I have grandkids and I'm enjoying that. I have two beautiful granddaughters. We're in the middle of six services. We had a service on Friday night, and, and, and Cheyenne and Summer came to my office after the service, and they were showing me their Easter outfits. And it was just so wonderful to look at them with all the sparkle in life, and they were telling me of all the exciting things that they were doing. And grandkids are awesome. And, and, and my, our middle son, Jared, and his wife, Jess, are expecting in June. And uh, Jess, when, before they had the sonograms, you know, our last name is Hoover. She, she had a great little word play, on, word play on that. She was calling the baby, Baby Who. So Baby Who is due in June. Um, and, and so we're going to have three grandchildren, and, and it's just great. All of you grandparents, you, you understand this, what, what someone said. Grandkids are so great. If I'd known how great they were, I'd have had them first, you know. And, and that's, that's great. So all of you have children and grandchildren or nieces or nephews or children that you love. When you look at them, and Easter is about that because a lot of you will have Easter egg hunts today and stuff with your kids. You celebrate these moments and enjoy them because life really is precious. We also get a measurement of how precious life is at the end of life. Uh, I was studying or reading something the other day, and, and I, I found that a fourth of Medicare is spent on the last year of life, and 80% of that fourth is spent on the last two months of life. So we know that life is precious by the way we treat it at the beginning, and we know that life is precious by the way we treat it at the end. And I think that's why Easter is so attractive to us. So I don't know where I found you today. Maybe when you walked in the door, maybe your beliefs are concrete and well-defined. Maybe you know what you believe about God and life to come, and you're very settled on that. Maybe you're definite and, 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 and sure. On the other hand, you could say, Mark, I'm not really sure what I believe about God or afterlife. You would say something perhaps like this. I, I don't consider myself a religious person, but I consider myself a spiritual person. I'm, I'm searching. I'm open. But my, my beliefs, to be sure, are not are not sure. My beliefs are not concrete. I don't know for sure what I believe. I guess what I want to say to all of us here today is regardless of whichever camp or somewhere in between that this message finds you in, I, I still think that at the end of the day, there's something about today that says to us what we feel innately or inherently inside of us, and that is this. There is something within us that tells us life doesn't end when it seems to end. I really believe that's in each of us. I think it's hardwired into us. Now, I would argue that our creator has hardwired certain things into life to remind us 
that life does not end when it seems to end. One of those is day and night. Because day is life. You have a day of life. And then you go to sleep at night, unless you work the late shift, but you go to sleep at night, which is kind of like death. But then you wake up again the next morning. It's like a resurrection. And then, of course, there is spring. I think spring is coming. I hope spring is coming. Um, I lived, I've lived in Kansas 28 years, and I still can't get used to the winters. But, I mean, you know, everything turns brown in the winter and kind of ugly, but then about this time of the year, everything comes back to life. I mean, God has just worked certain things into our lives to remind us that life doesn't end when it seems to end. Honestly, guys and gals, when you get your lawnmower out for the first time, just celebrate the reality that life doesn't end when it seems to end, okay? <laughs> But there's where there's a why in the road. And I just want to take a few moments today to talk about that why in the road. The why in the road is for all of us who, who believe that life doesn't end where it seems to end, will we travel the road of guesswork or will we travel the road of certainty? I mean, I, I have so many friends who sort of travel the, the road of guesswork. It's like, well, I think there could be a God. I'm not sure what he, she, it is, but I think there could be a God, and, and I really think that everybody probably lives in, in, a, in somewhere after life is over and goes to a better place. I'm not really sure in what state or what form, but I, I guess this, or I think this, or I've always thought this. Or there are others who seem to have certainty about this question of what happens the moment we die. Well, here's the one thing that, that is certain and sure, and, and this is what I want to talk to you about for the next 20 minutes. True Christianity is about one thing. It's not about a creed. It's not about a code. It's not about a particular church. It's not about a religion. True Christianity is about one thing and one thing only. It is about certainty in this matter of what happens the moment you die. I say true Christianity, and, and those of you who are New Springers, you know I don't use the word Christianity a lot because... Jesus Christ is the ultimate victim of identity theft. His name has been stolen and misused by so many people and cultures. I mean, nations have called themselves Christians and then invaded other nations. People groups have called themselves Christians and persecuted other peoples on the sign of the cross. That has absolutely nothing to do. It is infinitely apart from the person I know as Jesus Christ. So I, I, use, the, I use the adjective and qualifier true because true Christianity is not rules. It's not a system it's not an organization. It isn't a creed. It's not a system or a set of rules. It is about one thing and one thing only, certainty in this issue of what happens the moment you die. Let me prove that to you. Ask yourself a question because the spread of Christianity is still one of the oddest phenomenons in history because it all began with 120 frightened people 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. 120 people huddled together in a room, unsettled, unsure. Their leader had abandoned them, seemingly. A lot of them were filled with doubts and insecurities. 120 people frightened in a room who were not the rich and the powerful. They were not the elite. They were the hoi polloi of life. And yet by the fourth century, one of the Roman historians would say the Christians are everywhere. They're in our businesses. They're in our senate. They're in our universities. There were so many Christians in the Roman Empire that the Roman emperor just declared the whole Roman Empire Christian. That was a horrible thing. didn't help. But how did that happen? That's the question. How did they go from 120 frightened people 
to so many people that the Roman emperor gave up in a political move. He just declared the whole empire Christian. And by the way, that was after Christians had been tortured and abused by just about every people group in just about every way imaginable. They were tortured by every nation. They were abused. They were fired from their jobs. They were separated from their families. They were arrested. They were placed in prison. They were executed by the thousands. I mean, the Romans would crucify Christians on, along the roads. There were thousands of crosses along roads, and then they would set their bodies ablaze to light the roads at night. Or Christians' body, you know, Christians were put inside the bodies of skins of animals and thrown into the Colosseum for the wild animals to have sport with for the people to watch. So I, 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 you see my point. I'm asking the question, how did Christianity go from 120 frightened people to so many people that the Roman emperor declared the whole empire Christian and that in the face of constant persecution? Do you, do you think it was because Christians just convinced everybody they had a better religion? I mean, first of all, does that really work? How many of you try that at Thanksgiving dinner with your family members? My religion's better than your religion. You think that worked? Was that, was that it? Did they say, we got a better creed? What was, it that caused, what was it that caused Christianity spread? Guys, let me just be honest with you. This is it. You know, forgive me for breaking the sentence, but I'm an old debater from high school and college. So I, I've done so many rounds of debates. It's been a long time ago. Some of you are in law. You know what it's like to try cases. And you understand what it means to have a coup de grace argument. Just to have that, that essential argument that it's just unbeatable. And you save it for the end, and you throw it out there on the table, and you just let it lie there because it has the effect of there's no, there's no response to it. And here is the thing, because I don't think that these Christian people were the brightest people in the room. I don't think they were the most intellectual. They certainly weren't the most well-connected. What it was is they had a coup de grace statement that just seemed to trump everything. Regardless of what philosophy or religion came about, the Christians had this one line, but the man came out of the grave. But the man came out of the grave. You can tell me your philosophy, you can tell me your religion, you can tell me what you think about life, but the man came out of the grave. How do you deal with that? The man came out of the grave. Now, here's the thing that you and I need to understand about how Christianity grew in the first century. That was in the face of absolute contemporaneous skepticism. Because here's the thing, as I said a moment ago, they were, Christians were persecuted by every people group, and every people group was disincentivized to allow Christianity to spread. And so constantly there were, there were proofs and harangues against this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. But the problem was there was just so much evidence. I mean, for one thing, there were witnesses. Paul would write about the witnesses in one verse. He said he was seen by Peter, and we know who Peter was. And then he was seen by the twelve, that's the, the disciples. And after that, he was seen, now this is after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by 500, more than 500 people at one time, at one time, most of whom, Paul writes, are still alive. Now here's the thing, when, when this happened, Paul did not believe. So here is a guy who was writing about something that he did not believe at the time, but he's checked it out. Paul is a lawyer. He has checked it out. He has interviewed, and he is saying to his audience in Corinth, guys, he was seen by more than 500 people at one time, and there's still a number of people you can go check this out with. And then he was seen by James. Now, why is that important? Well, James was Jesus' brother, and James didn't believe in Jesus. It's really hard. I don't know. How, I don't, how many, you don't raise your hand, but I don't know how many of you have siblings. It's really hard to believe your brother's the Messiah. <laughs> really. <laughs> and James is... And Jesus is doing all this stuff, and James is like, I don't think so. 
Okay, now I've heard Mama tell him to pick up his socks. I don't know. I, I'm sure Jesus picked up his socks. Okay. Then James is like, you kidding me? We worked on the same tables and cabinets together. So James didn't believe in Jesus even, you know, all throughout Jesus' ministry when Jesus died on the cross and all that. He didn't believe. But afterwards, Jesus appeared to James. And as I said, it's the coup de grace thing when the man comes out of the grave. And James became an ardent communicator of the truth. And later, all the apostles and Paul said, last of all, I saw him. Now, why is this important? Because there were people back in Jesus' day who said, well, they just, you know, Jesus' followers, they missed him so bad, they just wanted to see him, so they talked themselves into thinking they saw something they didn't see. They hallucinated. Well, could Peter hallucinate? Probably. What about the leaven? Eh, it's a little more difficult to swallow. 500 people hallucinating at one time? Outside of Woodstock? I don't see that happening. <laughs> well, young people have no idea what I'm talking about. Sorry. I just discovered all my aging baby boomers. Thank you guys for coming to New Spring for Easter. 500 people having the same, no, it's not possible. So there, there were so many witnesses, that was problematic. So you, you understand that the intellectuals and the philosophers and the, the movers and shakers of the day, they just couldn't deal with the fact that there were so many witnesses who saw him. And then there was the issue of the body, corpus delecti. Because, the, you know, there were others who said, well, you know what it was. All these people who claimed to see him, see him these, the disciples, really, they're lying and, and they just stole the body. That was the predominant theory that went around for the few days after Jesus rose from the grave. In fact, you can read, and it's so interesting how this happens, because as God would have it, the enemies of Jesus go to the Roman governor Pilate, and here's what they say. Let me read it to you. Sir, we just remember that that liar announced while he was still alive, after three days I will be raised. we got to get that tomb sealed until the third day. There's a good chance his disciples will come and steal the corpse and go around saying he's risen from the dead and will be worse off than before. Pilate told them, you have a guard. Go ahead and secure it the best you can. So they went out and secured the tomb, sealing the stone and posting the guards. Well, was that possible? Now, first of all, we've got those witnesses to deal with. But was it possible for the disciples to steal the body of Jesus out of the tomb? Let's talk about what that would take. First of all, you need to know that the tomb was sealed. He was in a rich man's tomb. And this tomb was sealed by a stone that historians tell us would weigh somewhere between a half, one and a half and two tons. It was a circular stone that was rolled along a trench or a tray into place in the mouth of the stone. So here's what would have to happen if there was a Roman guard, which there was. The leader of that guard, before he could seal the tomb, would have to go in and ascertain that whatever they were guarding was actually there before he could put the seal of Rome on it. The Roman soldiers were, were well-trained and well-scared. I, I, I keep looking through history, and it seemed like there was only one punishment for anything that any Roman soldier did wrong, just death. I mean, you do something wrong, you screw up, you're dead. For those of you from the military, how would that help training? Huh? How about, how, about, how about that for military discipline? You screw up, you're dead. You guard something, it gets away from you, you're dead. Well, the, the leader of this Roman guard, before he could put the seal of Rome, and he had to go in and make sure that what they were guarding was actually there. So he would have gone in and checked very thoroughly because it was his life. He would have gone in and checked very thoroughly that the body of Jesus was actually there. And once he knew it was actually there, the stone would be rolled into place. There was a rope or, or twine that would stretch across the mouth of the grave, sealed with wax on either side. And in the middle of that, that twine was the seal of Rome, ascertaining and ascertaining that what was in there was actually there. Now, the guard. 
a watch or a guard of Roman soldiers was 16 soldiers. And they took shifts throughout the night of guarding what it was they were guarding. And they would stand watch in shifts of four. And that shift would last for three hours. So it would look something like this. There would be four Roman soldiers, four of the finest fighting men in the world, who would stand at the mouth of Jesus' tomb. You get the picture now? The the tomb is sealed. The big stone is in place. The twine is across the front with the seal. Four Roman soldiers standing there for three hours, guarding to make sure that nothing got into that tomb. Because, again, it was their lives if they lost him. The other 12 soldiers were allowed to sleep, but here is how they had to sleep. They had to sleep with their heads in toward whatever it was they were guarding in a semicircle, sort of like spokes on a wheel. And they were sleeping with their spears at their side to the ready. Now, all I'm saying is this. If these 11 frightened guys who scurried like frightened quail when Jesus was crucified, if they somehow summoned their courage up to steal the body of Jesus and perpetuate a hoax that would lead to Lord knows what, the first thing they would have to do is crawl over the sleeping bodies of 12 Roman soldiers who had their spears by their side and not wake one of them up. And then after they crawled past the 12 who were sleeping, they would have to disarm the four who were awake who were standing guard at the mouth of the tomb also without waking up the other 12. They would have had to pull off the seal of Rome, somehow figured out how to roll that one and a half to two ton stone out of place, gone in, and they actually would have unwrapped the body of Jesus because they found the grave clothes lying there. And Paula Dean could tell us there was no issue with that. Because when they, when they, when they buried Jesus, they, they wrapped him in 64 pounds of spices. Now, can you imagine what would have happened when they pulled loose those grave clothes with 64 pounds of spices? It would have been like an explosion in a perfume factory. Surely that would have awakened the soldiers. You see what I mean? I mean, for anyone who said, his disciples stole the body. Is like, nah, I don't, I don't think so. But if you could somehow get past the witnesses who saw him rise from the dead, the, in the ridiculous idea that his disciples stole his body, then you got to deal with all those people who were martyrs. These were people who gave their lives. Now, I know, I know, I, I, I hear what someone's going to say. Mark, people have given their lives for a farce. I get you. I know that there were those who flew airplanes into building for something that weren't true. And I'll also tell you this. If somebody today were to stand me up against a wall and say, either deny Jesus or we'll kill you, and if I died, I'd be the first to tell you I would be dying for something I heard. But these people didn't die for what they heard. They died for what they saw. They would have willingly gone to their deaths for something they claimed to see firsthand. So you might get me to die for something I've heard and believe, but you couldn't get me to die for something that I knew firsthand was a hoax. I want you to think about what happened to the followers of Jesus. And these are just the, some of the 12. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Peter was crucified. He said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord. With typical Peter's style, he asked to be crucified upside down. Andrew was beaten and fastened to an X-shaped cross. They say it took him two days to die. Bartholomew went to India and was crucified upside down like Peter. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Philip went to eastern Turkey and was crucified. Matthew was hacked to death in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britannia. The only one of the 12 disciples to die a natural death was John. And the Romans tried to kill him by scalding him with boiling oil, and he managed to survive somehow, so they banished him to Patmos, this cold rock pile in the Aegean Sea, where he wrote the book of Revelation for us. 
What was it that transformed these guys from timid chickens to, to guys at all costs who would share the good news of Jesus Christ? It was that they saw Jesus come back to life. No wonder the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. I mean, all of you who, who deal with logic, you know that infallible proofs is a redundancy. But it's just the sureness and the certainty of these proofs. These were infallible proofs. They were airtight. And so you can understand all the conversations in the first century when Christians were being abused, laughed at, persecuted, fired, hounded, arrested, killed. When, they, when someone would argue with them, they would always come back with this coup de grace statement, but the man came out of the grave. The man came back to life. That's why I tell you today, true Christianity isn't about a creed or a code or a church or anything else. It's about one thing. It is about certainty in this issue. What happens the moment you die? Well, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you today? Well, you see, at this moment, there's a little bit of a handoff between what happened to Jesus and what's going to happen to you and me. You know, you know death is so certain, and that's true for all of us, and death seems to be so final. I mean, for all of you who are KU fans, you know that when the clock goes to zeros, I mean, up until that moment, you can hope, but when it goes to zeros, I, in my office, I have my iPhone, and it's a, it's a new one. Because the iPhone I had a few weeks ago died. And it took me a while to figure out why it died. I'm oblivious. I have ADHD. I just don't think very clearly sometimes. I was in Mexico. I was staying at a hotel. The beach was out there. There was a huge pool in between the beach and the hotel. I decided I wanted to go back to the hotel. I was walking along the beach, and I thought, I don't want to walk around the pool. I'll just walk through the pool. And there was one of those pools. You've seen them. You know, it's like they're real shallow. It looks like people are walking on water. And then it goes down way steep. And I had thought when I was going to walk, I'm just going to walk across the top, but unfortunately the part I chose to go across, you know, there was, it was real shallow, and then all of a sudden it got to be real deep, and, and then I realized that I had walked across the deep part of the pool with my iPhone in my pocket. And iPhones, like cats, do not like water. <laughs> and it died. <laughs> I, you probably don't know what this is like. I don't know if you've ever had a cell phone that is dead. I mean, first of all, how much do we depend on these things? But I had one, and I kept looking at it, and I thought, well, it just ran out of battery. So I, I plugged it in. I could charge it until Jesus comes. It was not good. Nothing was going to happen. <laughs> we, I tried everything. I rebooted it. I put the paddles on it. I, I did everything I could. It's dead. Well, here's the thing. You and I are going to die someday. And there is an important nexus that you and I need to make. It is not a pleasant one. Well, let me just make it for a moment so that we can, we can embrace reality and then see how important Jesus is to us. Do you know why my phone died? I did something wrong. I did something wrong, and it died. There is a connection between doing something wrong and death. Some of us here today could say, I did something wrong, and my dream died. I did something wrong, and my opportunity died. I did something wrong, and my marriage died. There is a connection between doing something wrong and death. The Bible spells this out for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The Bible says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. Too bad for Adam, huh? So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Now, here's the thing. Death, just, death doesn't just mean the cessation of life. 
The word death, thanatos, means separation. So that means that when I die physically and my body and soul separate, when I go through that, I, I ha that happens because of sin, Adam's sin and my sin. But that's not the only death. There is a place that the Bible calls hell, which is not created for people, but people who refuse to accept God's love, really there's no other place. And so here's the thing. i got to tell you something. I don't deserve hell. I so deserve hell. Because to go to heaven, i got to be perfect, and I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. And my sin brought death. I did something wrong, therefore there's death. Enter Jesus Christ into our world. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come. Why did Jesus Christ come into our world? Why is there Christmas? Why did God come in the flesh? Jesus said, I came for a reason. I came that you might have life. I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Jesus comes to me, to Mark, who deserves death, who deserves hell. And Jesus comes to me and says, Mark, I came so that you can have life. I came so the clock won't go to zeros for you. I came that you might have life and that you might enjoy it to the full. And could I say to you today, Jesus came into this world to you so that you could have life. You think about it this way. When Jesus laid down on a Roman cross and they nailed nails in his hands and feet, the way God looked at it, he was paying for all of our wrong. He paid for our sins. So he conquered sin on the cross three days later when he walked out of the grave. And you know, when Jonah saw invent his vaccine, it was said that polio had been conquered. When the astronauts walked on the moon, it was said that space had been conquered. When Einstein and the other scientists figured out how to split the atom, it was said the elements had been conquered. But ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ walked out of his grave, death had been conquered. Death was finished. And he could say to you, because I live, you will live also. I closed my talk this morning by just doing something kind of strange. I want to take you to a scripture in the Bible that tells us about what happens the moment you die. I began this talk by saying Christianity is not about rules. It's not about system. It is about certainty about what happens the moment you die. And we began with certainty that Jesus came back to life. But now we're making that transition to what is going to happen to you and me when we die. Yesterday morning, I stood at this very place. And I communicated a message for a new springer who, who passed but seemed to be way too early. But I had the privilege of saying to all of us who sense on the inside that life goes on, that there is certainty in this matter. Let me read it to you. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, then it's when we die and leave this earthly body. We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not with human hands. And let's talk about what we read. First of all, it tells us that you and I are more than our bodies. Because here's the thing. The Bible says you live in your tent right now. The body that you have right now is juxtaposed against the body that you will have in eternity as a tent is contrasted with a permanent house. So here's the thing right now. You're living in your tent. Your tent is not you. My friend yesterday for whom I had the service, I, I said in that service, it will be said that he died because he had cancer. And I said, those are two mistakes. First of all, he didn't have cancer. His body had cancer. And on top of that, he didn't die. He's more alive than you and I are. Some of you have been told you have cancer. You don't have cancer. Your body has cancer. Some of you have been told you have heart disease. You don't have heart disease. Your body has heart disease. Your tent has heart disease. You don't. 
and you will not die. John chapter 11, verse 26, scholars say it's the most profound verse in the Bible. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There is a part of you. There is a part of you that is alert, that is cognitive, that loves, that makes decisions, that thinks, that processes. That part of you is eternal, and it will not die. Your body may drop, and we may have your funeral, but the real part of you is... I mean, why, is, why, why do people who have NDEs or near-death experiences, why do we always read that they walk down a long hallway? It's because this life doesn't end when it seems to end, and you are more than your body. I love my job. I really do. I'm an old guy who, in New Springs, median age is 25, so I get to talk to a lot of young adults, and I have a lot of fun with that. Because, you know, a lot of young New Springers, you know, it's like they always want to show me, you know, what good shape they're in, and they really are beautiful, and they'll say, Mark, you know, I'm buff, I'm ripped, and I'm, I'm so proud of them. But I want to tell them, take it from a 56-year-old, that time and gravity will do a number on that. <laughs> really. It's a tent. It's a tent. It's disposable. You are more than your body. And the Bible says this, when this body wears out, you're going to have a body that God is going to give that is so superior to this body, which I'm glad. Mine will have hair when I get there in the right place. <laughs> Verse 2 says, we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on our heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Oh, gosh. Don't get me started on this. People have such crazy ideas about what heaven is like. And I always tell New Spring this. You know, people talk about turning into angels. That would creep me out. I mean, here's the thing. I have ADHD. If I got to float around in a cloud and twang on a harp, I'd be so bored with heaven. No, no, you're going to still be you. I mean, you're going to be who you are. And, you know, my wife said something last night. We were leaving the, the, the service, and my wife, Mary Ellen said something to me that I thought was really important. She said, you know, our voices are so unique, and the voice of people you love is so precious. You will still be you. You will still have your voice. You will still be the person that you are. You will not be a spirit without a body. And the Bible says it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. And the Bible says God has prepared us for this. You realize you weren't prepared for this life. I don't know if there's anybody else like me, but I've lived long enough that a lot of my dreams have never materialized. A lot of things that I wanted to happen didn't come true. And it could be that you're here today and you say, honestly, Mark, my life's been a disappointment. But can I just say this to you? This is not the life you were destined for. If you try to measure your life with the life of the 40, 50, 70, 90, 100 years you live down here, you'll so miscalculate. As C.S. Lewis said, if, if I have desires that are not fulfilled in this world, then perhaps I was made for another world. And you were. That's what Paul said, and I'm not going to read this, but in the next few verses, he said that's why we're always confident. He said we're confident while we're on the earth because we're, you know, we're in our bodies, but we're absent from God you know, in God's personal presence. And he said, when we die, we're going to be absent from these bodies and present with God. What he's really saying is this. Look, if I live down here, God is with me. If I live there, I'm with God. One way or another, it's God and me. We're cool. I've got the accelerator all the way to the floor. Christianity is about one thing. It's about certainty the moment you die. Do you have that? You know, I think about how many people I talk to who are certain about 
so many other things that are so inferior to this. And yet when I ask them, are you sure you're going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I think maybe guess. I always thought. Mama said. My church teaches. Don't you want to be sure? You know, if first, if first, is it just me or have there been more patrolmen the last few days? I had to drive a lot on Friday. Everywhere I went, there were police cars and sheriff's cars just waiting for people to speed. And I thought, who would speed on Good Friday? I mean, all this police presence on Easter weekend, surely people wouldn't do something wrong. Let's just say, God forbid, that I get pulled over by a patrolman. And a patrolman came to me and said, okay, Mr. Hoover, may I see your license, please? And I said, license? Do I, I don't need a license to drive. What makes, you, what, makes you, what makes you think I need a license? I mean, and a police officer would say, well, you have to have a license to drive. And I said, no, I don't have to have a license to drive. I mean, I see people driving up and down the road all the time. And I have a car. And he would say, well, Mr. Hoover, you know, like, didn't you take your driver's exam? And I, and I, and I just said, I don't believe in things like that because I just don't think anybody should judge me. About that time, that, pat- that patrol person is going to have me blowing into something. <laughs> and the next thing, they're going to have me spread eagle against the back of my Hyundai Genesis. And they're going to put cuffs on me and take me downtown to where somebody in a black robe will explain to me why I need a driver's license. <laughs> How'd it go? So I said a few months ago, I was in Mexico the other day. And I had to go through customs. And again, is it just me? Or do those people not have a sense of humor? <laughs> I mean, you know, you just try to smile and say something cheerful to them. They don't smile. See your passport, please. I said, passport? I don't need a passport. I'm an American. <laughs> I can fly anywhere I want to fly. I can, I can go to any country I want to go to. Passport. Well, you, you, it's your documentation. Docu- documentation? I'm here. Look at me. You don't need documentation. Just see me. I'm going to a Mexican jail, and I may never get out for the rest of my life. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? If we would never, I mean, we wouldn't even drive to Quick Trip without our driver's license. If, if I would drive to Quick Trip without my driver's license, why would I think I could take the most important journey of my life and not be sure where I'm going? If I wouldn't dare think about leaving this country and going to a ne- the next country without my passport, why on God's green earth would I think about leaving this life and going to the next life without being sure? Can you be? Oh, yeah. You sang a song a few moments ago. You remember singing the song that said, and anyone who calls upon his name, they will be saved? Did you know that's in the Bible? Guys, I hate religion. Religion is about jumping through hoops to appease a God. And who can ever jump through enough hoops? Those of us who have tried religion, we know that. Christianity is not about pursuing God. It's about God pursuing you. 
And it's not about you making yourself fit for God. It's about God making you fit to live the life that you can live forever. It is not what you do for God. It is what God has done for you. And here's what he did. He put his son on a cross to pay for your death. And then he walked out of his grave under his own power and put an exclamation point on God's offer that he makes to you. That anyone who calls upon his name, they will be rescued. And here's the thing. If you would invite Jesus Christ by faith into you, I mean, here's the thing. You're not inviting a dead man in. You're inviting the living son of God in. If you will invite him into your life, he will forgive you of everything you've ever done. Or believe it or not, this is what the Bible says, even everything you will do. You say, Mark, can that be true? Hey, I have no hope if it's not true. I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. But his grace is what comes into your life and transforms you. I'd like to pray a prayer with you. And these aren't magic words, but you can repeat them with me. And the important thing is what you mean. You know, it won't sound all that complicated. But you know, I stand before brides and grooms all the time and I ask them to repeat something after me. It doesn't sound very complicated, but when it's over, they're married. And if you would pray this prayer, mean it from your heart. There's a God who loves you more than you can dream on the other end who will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. Pray with me, please. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I turn from living life on my own terms. I receive Jesus as my Savior and King. Thank you for this awesome gift in Jesus' name.